New Hampshire headlines in WKXL. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. Be sure to check out nhtalkradio.com. As always, get all the back episodes of the show as well as the rest of the fantastic programming we have here at the station. Excited to be joined this week by Hadley Barndahl, a reporter over at the New Hampshire Bulletin, newhampshirebulletin.com to get more from them. Welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. All right, we got some uh, energy and infrastructure to talk about this week. So let's start off with uh, this article. It's super interesting. Energy Omnibus Amendment is getting a Senate airing. And uh, typical New Hampshire, right? The last last minute right here towards the end of this session, they're trying to cram as many things in as possible. What's going on with this? Yeah, so I'll start by framing for, for folks who don't necessarily know very much about how the legislature works. You know, at one point when the House has dealt with its bills and the Senate has dealt with its bills, there's crossover. Um, so now the House is dealing with Senate bills and Senate is dealing with House bills. So um, lots of, you know, different priorities in both legislative bodies. Um, so yesterday we saw kind of a major omnibus amendment introduced um, in the Senate Energy and Natural Resources uh, Committee, which it was, it was, it's a bipartisan amendment um, combining about uh, five different bills that have originated in, in both the House and the Senate with very different energy priorities. And um, I, it was introduced yesterday by um, Senator Kevin Navard, who's the, the committee um, chairman, and he was talking about this is continuing the longstanding tradition of um, compromise uh, between House Repub uh, House House and Senate Republicans and Democrats. And um, like I said, five very different um, energy priorities um, included in this. Um, everything from um, a repeal of a state mandate for utility companies to submit least cost plans to the Public Utilities Commission, um, to amendments to the Site Evaluation Committee, which is the state body that evaluates um, if energy facilities are approved or um, denied. Um, there there's a repeal of an energy efficiency related board that would um, bring duties, you know, to the Department of Energy instead. Um, and then there's also, um, you know, expansion of um, municipal host net metering. So, like I said, not a lot of consistency in the omnibus. You know, it's it's five very different um, priorities and, and topics kind of all put together um, in this one amendment that got a hearing yesterday. Yeah, it's energy is a fascinating thing with Republicans in control of the House, because especially in New Hampshire, like people think Republicans, they think what's going on down in D.C. when it comes to energy and maybe they're pushing fossil fuels and such. But it's always been a fascinating political thing here for me to see these libertarians that are, are like free market and everything. But they're they're a bunch of tree huggers. <laughs> a lot of them. They is like ultimately when it comes down to it, and the corporate more the corporate traditional Republicans maybe are a little less um, likely to go along with more of the environmentalist crowd. But the way a lot of the especially all the free state libertarians are are more likely to side with some Democrats on some energy things. Well, it's really interesting that we have seen, you know, Democrats this session put forward, you know, a lot of climate related priorities while Republicans have been more focused on um, streamlining, you know, energy production and citing, um, you know, a lot of the climate related efforts died. Um, and we still have some of these energy related bills um, that are alive. And, and one of them that just merited really interesting debate yesterday was, as I mentioned, this this. Um, 
what a bill that would repeal um, what utility companies have to submit to prove that essentially they are spending their money um, in the least cost way and for the public good. Um, and it was mentioned on several occasions that the utility companies never asked for this, um, but rather the Republicans are seeking to, um, you know, improve an outdated system, um, you know, cut back on governmental, you know, like red tape. Um, and the debate was was fascinating because while everyone kind of acknowledges that it is an out an outdated system, you know, a statute that could absolutely use, um, you know, some improvement, um, people were really wary of a full repeal without something to replace it. So what is the site evaluation committee? Can you dive into that a little bit? Sure. So the site evaluation committee is the body that exists in New Hampshire um, that reviews and evaluates um, energy facility applications. So, you know, anything from a transmission project to, you know, a major power plant. Um, offshore wind, uh, solar farms, um, they, they are essentially evaluating um, the environmental public health impacts, you know, everything that goes along with, you know, a major energy facility coming in. And there have been many um, legislative studies and committees over the years trying to improve um, the, the, the site evaluation committee. It does not have a lot of resources. It does not have a lot of funding. Um, is there's one staff member and then um, a lot of other kind of disparate members that, you know, unfortunately, att attendance is not always great. You know, so there's there people have talked about, you know, structural issues with it, um, but there was a real concern about initial um, efforts to dissolve the site valuation committee and put all responsibilities to the Public Utilities Commission. Um, so that bill ultimately like, did, did not make it out of the House. And instead, um, Republicans decided to uh, move forward with administrative changes to the current site evaluation committee um, in an effort to you know, cut, like I mentioned, cut away um, red tape and streamline um, a more robust energy siting process in the state. So is Mark Sanborn for keeping it or getting rid of it? I, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, so Mark Sanborn is assistant commissioner of um, Department of Environmental Services, and he spoke in, in staunch support yesterday of um, the changes, specifically because I learned that in the past there was um, some some conflict between, you know, permitting decisions that the state agencies would make. Like, for example, DES has to, you know, issue air permits. They're, they're all their own permits. And then there was conflict with what the site evaluation committee wanted to do. So I guess this one of the administrative changes here is that um, they're making state agency permitting paramount in the process. Um, so I think that Mark was very pleased with that um, in terms of what he said at the hearing yesterday. It, it's very confusing when you dive into some of these larger state agencies. Like, it make me no bones about my day job working at, at one of the executive branch um, uh, commissions. It, but I'm in a smaller one, so it's a lot easier to figure out what's going on. But you go to HHS, and that That's was bad. really prevalent as we're going through the COVID pandemic. All the, the sub-agencies, uh, Center for Medicaid Services is under them, but they're not really under them because it's a federal program. But Henry's floating around doing his thing over there. And, and it's very similar with, with DO, DOT, Department of Safety, and especially with, uh, with Department of Environmental Services. Like you wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily think that they'd be responsible for these things. 
Absolutely. If you, if you go on their website and, you know, look at their navigation bar, you know, it's incredible, you know, all of the different things that they are monitoring from water and sewer to air to to land, soil, um, public health, uh, you know, environmental impacts on public health. Um, there, there's a lot under that agency. All right. Let's move over to this other article is super interesting case study at the the confusing nature of these mobile home parks in the state of New Hampshire, which there are a considerable amount, ranging from age 55 plus to all all uh, different age range, communities, full families, and things like that. But when you think about the infrastructure that many rural towns have, it's very, it, it's not straightforward, and it'll vary a lot depending on especially how rural you end up. So what's going on here with drinking water and uh, septic in the state for these communities? Yeah, so when you look at manufactured home um, communities, I mean, we don't think of there being a lot of new ones, you know what I mean? You know, like a, manu a lot of manufactured homes, communities were, you know, constructed in the 70s and the 80s, and a lot of the homes in them are are still that old, um, as well as their infrastructure. And, you know, the infrastructure was built, um, you know, during a time when there maybe wasn't a lot of municipal oversight, you know, code standards. Um, so uh, manufactured home communities, are really a lot of them are really plagued today by really bad infrastructure in terms of um, drinking water, wastewater, um, and there's not a lot of dollars to deal with it. You know, especially in in resident-owned cooperatives, which is where you know the residents um, in the neighborhood actually are successfully buy the land under their homes and and they operate their neighborhood as a nonprofit. You know, there's not a lot of capital there to say you know replace a septic system or you know drill a new well, um, but that doesn't mean that these problems go away. You know, they are they are daily issues of public health, of environment that a lot of these residents are dealing with. So I did a story recently about how federal funding, um, especially with you know all the big flow of new infrastructure funding from the federal government, um, is making a really big difference for some of these neighborhoods in being able to completely revamp their infrastructure systems um, and make changes that will you know make the neighborhood viable for 20, 30, 40 more years. Yeah, and that's especially helpful. I'd imagine especially the co-ops where it's resident-owned, that's tremendously important because they don't have necessarily the uh, this the one advantage to the, I, I don't want to speak positive necessarily, of some communities and the other multinational corporations and BlackRock and such that are really managing many of these companies and have huge problems personally with how, how they uh how they operate, but they have the back end to kind of make sure things are up to date and dump money into future developments because they've got so many properties. These small co-ops don't have that. And, and from folks I've interviewed, a big problem is, you know, when residents do buy, um, you know, the property from whatever outside landlord owned it before, a lot of the times they are inheriting poor infrastructure, you know, infrastructure that was not maintained over the years. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, they have to deal with this, um, you know, with their own dollars. So um, basically my, my article kind of highlighted all of the various federal funding um, avenues that uh, these communities can use utilize right now to really, you know, create a neighborhood for for the future and deal with these some, you know, some of these basic health and environmental needs that they're facing, you know, because of leaky septic systems, you know, uh, drinking water systems that are constantly leaking and, and therefore resulting in, you know, these exorbitantly high water bills, you know, that aren't even based on consumption. It's just based on what's, you know, leaking into the ground. Um, so I think it was it was really exciting for a lot of the folks that I spoke with about the opportunities that these federal you know dollars are, are opening up. 
Yeah, and there's there's a great chart at NewHampshireBulletin.com, which I'll link in the uh, description at NHTalkRadio.com. Uh, $31.3 million in ARPA funds were used for manufactured home communities uh, in the state, which is, which is an astronomical amount of money that, I mean, the state just itself wouldn't be able to put together on its own, very at least all at once. Absolutely. And I think there's there's over two dozen, um, you know, manufactured home communities on that list. Every corner of the state, you could imagine um, getting a share of that money um, for both drinking water and wastewater improvements. Yeah. And yeah, it, it, it's important that these these communities stay viable from the business perspective. I mean, it's especially with our housing crisis in the state. Not showing any signs of abating. I mean, the the invest in New Hampshire plan is great, but you're talking years before it's really going to be able to be developed. You're seeing some communities like here in Concord where there's a whole bunch of housing that's going to be put in. But I mean, it's months, if not years, before people can actually live in those residences if they don't have any problems, like we saw in senior reporter Anne Marie Timmons of the Bulletin was reporting on uh, like sketchiness with ownership with some of these places, especially this one down in Manchester and the Oh, what what town was was it that she was investigating? Do you remember offhand? I'm not sure off the top of my a, head. You'd have to ask her. <laughs> it was a fascinating story. Hmm. This woman purchased this huge tract of land. There was like an old school, an old hospital and everything. She said, we're going to tear it down. We're going to put up this huge community. And it was, she had none of the inf- the, the dollars or logistics hmm. sorted out and how to make that happen. It was just terrifying the amount of money that she was saying she had access to and she, she didn't. And she was hmm. actually in court because of the way she was handling a property down in Manchester and like it, it's tough to, to turn around these properties so if they can fix the infrastructure especially it's an advantage with the manufactured homes like you, like you can tear down the home as long as the infrastructure is good and put up a new new building it's and that makes it a lot easier for especially once again the co-ops and smaller corporations to keep the these properties running at hopefully a profit or at least uh, consistent. And, and it's a great point. You know, a lot of people that I have interviewed, you know, have talked about manufactured home communities being one of the, the only remaining, you know, forms of affordable home ownership in America, you know, um, and they're cre- they're providing housing for families, you know, for seniors on on Social Security. And, you know, they're they make up a really um, disproportionate amount, too, of rural housing, you know, folks that live in, in rural communities. So it's essential that these infrastructure um needs are addressed. All right, last five minutes here. I want to touch on this story. Counting New Hampshire's bats is important this summer. It's, it's, it's super interesting. What's going on here? So love weird animal stories, right? Um, so uh, there is a project in the state called, uh, I think it's the New Hampshire Bat Count Project, where every year um, Fish and Game and UNH Cooperative kind of reach out to the public, you know, folks who have barns, attics, church steeples, what have you, um, you know, places where bats like to, you know, what they say, roost in, in the summertime where it's warm and dark and moist. And um, they essentially want you to count your bats, you know, a bat census per say. Um, and they're they're highlighting it as being essentially important during this time because there's there has been and continues to be um, a mostly fatal fungal disease that is wiping out a lot of the state's bat populations. And um, so seeing, you know, how the numbers are being impacted year over year uh, is really important. And honestly, did I think I was going to write a story about bats this week? No, but that's just the nature of being in journalism. <laughs>
Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's, you, you never yeah. know where you're going to end up looking. And, right. And, and it's the big thing I, I always try and harp on as much as possible, the importance of data when it comes to policy decisions and figuring out what's actually going on at the state level. As much information as they're able to collect, the more they're going to be able to 10 years from now say, hey, we, we've lost a quarter of the population over the span of a decade. What exactly is going on? Is it because of buildings? Is it because of diseases like this? It's very important that uh, research scientists and uh, institutions are able to keep track of things. Yeah, I'm not going to remember the exact stat off the top of my head, but it's in my story that one of the bat species was counted, you know, at some point, uh, you know, around the couple thousands. And in the 2018 count, um, one was counted as a single. So, you know, really kind of showing um, the impact of this this disease on the population. So whether you're a bat lover or not, um, counting them is important. It is, and there's, and once again, we talked about federal funding in, in the previous story, but I mean, there, there's opportunities like that for, we're, we're just talking about bats right here, because this is what right. we wrote about, but it's, there's all sorts of other programs like that, whether it's butterflies or um, oh, yeah. moose or bear, different programs, there's definitely programs out there for all those sorts of different things, and uh, the, yeah, that specifically, I found the number right here, it's 3,100 bats were collected back in 2018, and, um, and now there's just, there's just one <laughs> that there was. Yes, count. yes of that one particular species. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, so and that, um, you know, I think, I think I found that you know, people in New Hampshire really enjoy being citizen scientists, if you want to call. It. You know, when people oh, yeah. are called upon to, you know, contribute to a larger project based on you know what's happening in their backyard or in their house. Um, so hopefully, more people saw the story and and will contribute to the data this year. Yeah, definitely. And it's, I'll link the article, but it's a New Hampshire Bat Counts website, uh, which is on the wildlife site. Be sure to click on there. Of course, they fix these URLs at the state website. Oh, my God. So this is a huge <laughs> website. Check, check out Hadley's article. That's the best way to do it. It's a two-for-one. I get to promote the bulletin, and, uh, <laughs> and then you can help the bats by doing that. And they're going to be having some educational events coming up, too, right? Yes, there, there are two events um, coming up for folks who are interested. One, to just kind of learn more about bats. And I think one actually has some hands-on learning as well. So if that's in the article, if, if you're interested in going out to those meetings. May 24th for the Bat Counts training and June 13th for the Bats of New Hampshire, which is going to be at Squam Lake. So maybe that's an excuse I drag my kid up there. I think he Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hadley Barndahl, a reporter of the New Hampshire Bulletin. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much. I'll see you soon. NewHampshireBulletin.com to get all her articles as well as Anne-Marie and Ethan. They join the show on a regular basis here on New Hampshire Headlines. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead. Be sure to check out nhtalkradio.com to get all the rest of the episodes of New Hampshire Headlines as well as on WKXL's podcast feed.